You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 292 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, when we left off last time, the Federals had won what would turn out to be the decisive battle of the campaign at Champion Hill on May 16, 1863. The Confederates had then retreated west toward Vicksburg, but were routed at the Big Black River on May 17th. We just wanted to say that if you've picked up the Echoes of Glory Civil War Atlas by Time Life that we are endlessly recommending, then you can see that there's a map which shows the march of Grant's army into the interior of the state of Mississippi, another one that shows what happened at Champion Hill, and then a good map showing the two armies' positions in the siege lines at Vicksburg. Uh, So those maps, of course, will help you picture what's going on as we talk about it. Okay, so now back to the story. One can only wonder what was going through the mind of Confederate commander John Pemberton as he made his way toward Vicksburg. He had lost two battles in two days and nearly half of the force he had taken out to meet the Federals. Pemberton summed up his situation when he told a member of his staff, quote, Just 30 years ago, I began my military career by receiving my appointment to a cadetship at the U.S. Military Academy. And today, that same date, that career is ended in disaster and disgrace. Well, as one might expect, the exact opposite feeling prevailed in the ranks of Ulysses S. Grant's Army of the Tennessee. The victory at Champion Hill and the rout of the rebels at Big Black River meant that Grant had the enemy on the run, and he wasn't about to let off the throttle now. After months of trying, Vicksburg was now within his reach. So instead of pausing to regroup his forces on the near side of the Big Black, Grant ordered his three corps across the river in pursuit of the beaten Confederates. The heavy boom of artillery on May 16th had alarmed the citizens of Vicksburg as the two armies fought at Champion Hill. The two divisions that Pemberton had left behind at Vicksburg had presented a facade of calm and normalcy, but the ominous sound of fighting made the people realize for the first time that danger was close at hand. The sound of battle grew louder the following day, Sunday, May 17th, as the armies clashed at the Big Black River. Then that afternoon, the citizens of Vicksburg were shocked to see the defeated and demoralized Confederate army come stumbling into the city. 
Stories of defeat and rumors of treachery further darkened the mood. Rumors had it that the Pennsylvania-born Pemberton had sold out Vicksburg to his fellow Yankees for $100,000. An Alabama private described the Army as, quote, all dejected. A member of Pemberton's staff admitted the, quote, Army was shockingly demoralized. A soldier in a Georgia regiment said, If an attack is made tomorrow, we are lost. I have never been low-spirited, but things look too dark for even me to be hopeful. The rebel soldiers were tired and beaten, but the civilians were horrified. As the demoralized mass of Pemberton's army filled the streets, anguish gripped those who watched them. Emma Balfour, the wife of a local doctor, stood in her doorway on that fateful day and watched the drama in disbelief. She wrote in her diary about the shocking sight, saying, I hope never to witness again such a scene as the return of our routed army. From 12 o'clock until late in the night, the streets and roads were jammed with wagons, cannons, horses, men, mules, cows, sheep, everything you can imagine that appertains to an army being brought hurriedly within the entrenchment. Nothing like order prevailed, of course, as divisions, brigades, and regiments were broken and separated. As the citizens of Vicksburg aided the troops by carrying water to street corners or opening their pantries, they heard details of the defeats at Champion Hill and Big Black River, and one fact became apparent, that there was widespread discontent with Pemberton. Emma Balfour captured the essence of this unhappiness when she wrote, I knew from all I saw and heard that it was want of confidence in the general commanding that was the cause of our disaster. Overcome with emotion, she captured the fears of many people in Vicksburg when she wrote, What is to become of all the living things in this place, shut up as in a trap? God only knows. Throughout the afternoon and into the evening, the exhausted Confederate soldiers made their way back to Vicksburg. Even more troops arrived when Pemberton ordered the rebel garrisons in outlying spots, such as Haynes Bluff and Warrenton, to abandon their positions and hurry to the city to help man the defensive works. In their book, Vicksburg is the Key, William Shea and Terrence Winchell write that after the retreat, quote, Officers gradually restored order and directed their men into the landward defenses to meet Grant's rapidly approaching army. A medley of sounds filled the night air as the Confederates readied the eight miles of fortifications around the city. Officers shouted orders, teamsters whipped their animals, artillerymen rested their guns into place, and men cursed and prayed. Many soldiers worked with picks and shovels to repair the damage done to the earthworks by the heavy rains of the preceding months. Others picked up axes and saws and ventured into the forest beyond. Shea and Winchell continue. Throughout the night, the ringing of axes was constant as hundreds of trees were felled to clear fields of fire and form an immense abatis 
an essential part of fixed fortifications in the 19th century. An abatis was a dense obstruction of felled trees toppled toward likely avenues of enemy approach. The branches were, were stripped and sharpened, and in some instances, telegraph wire was strung among the limbs. Its purpose was to disrupt approaching lines of infantry. Attacking soldiers would be able to worm their way through the tangled obstruction singly or in small groups, but once on the inner side of the abatis and in a clear field of fire, they were easy targets for defenders posted behind stout fortifications. Work continued at a feverish pace, and by sunrise on May 19th, Vicksburg was in a good state of defense. Confederate military engineers had spent months laying out and then overseeing the construction of those eight miles of entrenchments, earthen forts, and artillery emplacements. On the rebel left, or northern side of the works, there was a high and formidable ridge, now studded with defenses which were held by Major General Martin L. Smith's division of Louisianans and Tennesseans. The center of the Confederate line, directly to the east of Vicksburg, overlooked steeply rolling terrain that the Federals would have to negotiate to get at the rebel works. Posted here were John Bowen's division of Missourians and Arkansans, along with Major General John H. Forney's division of Louisiana, Mississippi, and Alabama soldiers. And then on the rebel right, or south of Vicksburg, where little action was expected, the works were manned by a unit that had performed poorly at Champion Hill, Carter Stevenson's division of Texans, Georgians, and Tennesseans. All told, there were about 28,000 rebel troops manning Vicksburg's landward defenses, while several thousand more men crewed the river batteries or performed other duties inside the defensive lines. As the Confederates at Vicksburg got their house in order, so to speak, Federal soldiers were also hard at work building bridges at four spots across the Big Black. Even as the rebels labored throughout the night, the Yankees completed their work in a matter of hours and, by the glow of huge bonfires, pushed two divisions across the river before bedding down for the night. William Tecumseh Sherman's trailing divisions had by now caught up with the main body of the army after completing their work of destruction at Jackson. That night, Sherman watched as his troops threw a pontoon bridge across the Big Black at Bridgeport, a few miles north of the battlefield. He later recalled how, quote, After dark, the whole scene was lit up with fires of pitch pine. General Grant joined me there, and we sat on a log, looking at the passage of the troops by the light of those fires. The bridge swayed to and fro under the passing feet, and made a fine war picture. As the sky lightened along with the rising sun on the morning of May 18th, the Federals resumed their advance toward Vicksburg. With the arrival of Sherman's divisions, Grant's army now numbered over 40,000 men. As the Yankees marched westward, they found the roads were littered with discarded muskets, 
blankets, knapsacks, and all manner of other equipment that provided evidence of Confederate panic and demoralization. The Federals, by contrast, marched with a lively step, confident they would soon complete their work of conquest with the capture of Vicksburg. As the Federals neared Vicksburg, Sherman steered some of his men to the north, aiming for the empty Confederate defensive works at Haines Bluff. There on the Yazoo River, Grant's army could reestablish contact with the Navy's gunboats and, more importantly, once again start to receive a regular flow of supplies. Yep. Uh, remember that Grant had essentially cut himself off from a line of communication and supply in the traditional sense after he started marching into the interior of Mississippi and had his men live off the fat of the land. But he could only do that for so long, so re-establishing contact with Porter's gunboats and reopening a regular line of supply here was a hugely important deal. Exactly. At any rate, as Sherman rode to the edge of the Walnut Hills, he could look down on the swampy woods and marshy clearings of Chickasaw Bayou, where his men had been soundly defeated in December 1862. He was joined there by Grant, who must have felt no small amount of relief and also pride at what he had accomplished in the last 20 days. Grant's feeling of accomplishment must have been boosted even more as Sherman turned to him and confessed, Up until this moment, I never thought your expedition a success. I never could see the end clearly till now. Well, needless to say, that was quite an admission from a man who had gone on record at the beginning as being opposed to the whole operation. Late in the afternoon of May 18th, Confederate soldiers watched from the security of their works as Federal soldiers cautiously approached the Vicksburg defenses. Skirmishing erupted and artillery roared into action on both sides, but the day wore away without any major fighting. That night, the soldiers of both armies rested on their arms, which means they basically just laid down where they were and caught what sleep they could while ready to resume fighting at a moment's notice. Everyone sensed there would be bloody work ahead when the sun rose the next morning, and each man prepared for the upcoming combat in his own way. William Foster, a chaplain in the 35th Mississippi, captured the varied emotions of the evening on the pages of his diary, writing, That night was a solemn night for the soldier. None but those who have had the experience can tell the feeling of the soldier's heart on the night before the approaching battle, when upon the wings of fond imagination his soul visits the loved ones at home. And while he thinks of a lonely and loving wife whose face he may never look upon again, his heart bleeds and dark forebodings fill his mind. Then when he lies down upon the cold ground and looks up to the shining stars above, the gloomy thought crosses his mind that it may be the last time he will ever look upon the shining heavens, and that those same stars which now look down so quiet upon him may behold him on the morrow night, a lifeless, mangled corpse. If he be a child of God, he will commit his soul to God and implore his protection. If a wicked man, 
He will review the past with remorse and the future with dread, and will form a weak resolution to do better from that day if God will spare his life through the battle. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Ulysses S. Grant was anxious for a quick victory on May 19th, the day after his army arrived in front of the Confederates' Vicksburg defenses. He knew the rebels must be demoralized after just suffering two defeats in two days at Champion Hill and the Big Black River. The rebels had broken and run at the Big Black, despite having the advantage of fortifications, and so Grant felt there was a good chance they would break again if they were quickly hit with an attack here at Vicksburg. Having decided to seek that quick victory here at Vicksburg, Grant, following a hasty reconnaissance of the enemy positions, ordered Sherman's 15th Corps to make an assault. Federal artillery bombarded the rebel earthworks for four hours in preparation for the infantry attack. Smoke from the guns hung in the air and made it difficult to judge the effectiveness of the bombardment. But while the cannon hammered away at the Confederate defenses, Sherman's men prepared to advance. At two o'clock that afternoon, the guns fell silent and Sherman's infantry shook themselves out into line of battle astride the ominously named Graveyard Road, which entered the rebel works northeast of Vicksburg. Major General Frank Blair's division led the advance. On Blair's right, pushing through a cornfield north of the road, were the men of the 1st Battalion, 13th U.S. Infantry Regiment, which was one of only two regular Army units, then with Grant at Vicksburg. Led by a grandnephew of George Washington, Captain Edward Washington, the regulars followed their colors into a deep ravine fronting the Confederate fortifications. They worked their way through the obstruction of felled trees, then clawed their way up the slope toward the stockade redan. A redan is a triangular-shaped fortification whose apex faces the enemy. This particular position received its unusual name because it was adjacent to a stockade of logs blocking the graveyard road where it entered the Confederate defensive line. Braving the storm of musketry from the Missourians and Louisianans crowded into the Redan and the trenches to either side of the fortification, 
A handful of regulars reached the ditch in front of the Confederate position and planted their colors on the slope. Unable to advance any farther into the murderous enemy fire, the Federals scooped out holes in the slope immediately below the rebel positions and then waited for additional troops to come up and support them. A few men from the 83rd Indiana and 127th Illinois also reached the ditch, but still the Federals were too few in number to attempt an assault on the Redan. Meanwhile, most of the troops in Blair's division were pinned to the ground as they approached the Confederate works, from which positions they spent the afternoon in a lethal exchange of musketry with the Confederate defenders. The hot sun beat down unmercifully on the Federal troops pinned down on either side of the graveyard road. As the afternoon wore on, sweat streamed down the faces of the men, many of whom had already fired off their last cartridge, and the desperate cry for more ammunition was heard above the sound of battle. In the 54th Illinois, a young musician named Orion Howe was one of four soldiers who volunteered to run to the rear and seek a fresh supply of cartridges. Three of the runners were killed outright, but Howe, though wounded, managed to reach the rear and reported the desperate situation directly to Sherman. Only 14 years old, Howe Howe would be the youngest recipient of the Medal of Honor at Vicksburg. Yeah, uh, just amazing. Well, boxes of ammunition were run forward and the cartridges distributed to the men, but to no avail. The assault failed with the loss of 942 men killed, wounded, or missing, all from Sherman's Corps. Confederate casualties totaled perhaps 200 killed and wounded. Among the Federal troops who suffered the greatest loss on May 19th were Captain Washington's regulars, who experienced a casualty rate of 43%. Attesting to the fury of the battle was the appalling loss among the battalion's color guard. Seventeen flag bearers were killed or wounded while advancing the national and regimental colors toward the stockade redan. Upon examination that evening, the national colors revealed 18 bullet holes, while the regimental standard bore 56 bullet holes. In recognition of the regulars' heroic performance and terrible loss that day, Sherman, who had commanded the battalion upon its organization in 1861, now directed that the honor, first at Vicksburg, be inscribed on its battle flag. First at Vicksburg became the regiment's nickname, and members of the descendant unit in the modern U.S. Army proudly wear the phrase on their shoulder patches to this day. Realizing that Sherman's hastily organized assault on May 19th had been a throw of the dice that had failed, Grant nevertheless decided to make a more thorough reconnaissance of the Confederate positions and try again to crack Vicksburg's defenses sooner rather than later. The Federal units also worked their way forward, closer to the Rebel lines, shortening the distance and therefore the time they would be under fire when they attacked the enemy works. On May 22nd, 
three days after the first failed assault, Grant hurled his entire army against Vicksburg's defenses. Federal artillery again roared into action and subjected the Confederate positions to another four-hour bombardment. As thick smoke again shrouded the battlefield, Union officers readied their men for the assault. On the Federal right, Sherman's troops would once more storm the stockade Redan along Graveyard Road. In the center, east of Vicksburg, the soldiers of McPherson's Corps formed a big attack column and prepared to strike both the 3rd Louisiana Redan and the Great Redoubt, two massive earthworks that guarded the point where the Jackson Road passed through the defenses. FYI, a redoubt is a rectangular-shaped fortification. Here, the Great Redoubt was the largest and most formidable work on the defensive line around Vicksburg. Exactly. And then farther south, on the, on the Union left, McClernand's men focused their attention on the Second Texas Lunette, a crescent-shaped fortification, which guarded the Baldwin Ferry Road, and also prepared to assault the Railroad Redoubt, which, as you might guess from its name, guarded the spot where the Southern Railroad came through the Rebel lines. At 10 o'clock in the morning, the Union artillery fell silent, and tens of thousands of blue-clad soldiers raised a cheer as they surged forward over a three-mile front. Leading Sherman's assault along the Graveyard Road were 150 volunteers carrying planks, ladders, and bundles of cane, which would be used to bridge the ditch fronting the stockade Redan and enable the following infantry to scale the bastion's earthen walls. The building Grant was using as his headquarters was dismantled to obtain the planks and the materials used to construct the scaling ladders and so the commanding general moved to a tent for the duration of the siege. At any rate, the leading detachment of volunteers, which in cases like this were known as the Forlorn Hope, raced along the graveyard road toward the enemy lines. Men seemed to fall with almost every step, but the remainder somehow managed to reach the foot of the redan, fill the ditch with cane and planks, and place the ladders against the slope below the walls. Once again, however, the storm of Confederate defensive fire kept the supporting infantry at bay. Despite detailed planning and almost superhuman effort on the part of the forlorn hope, Sherman's attack was another costly failure. McPherson's troops met a similar fate along the Jackson Road. Charging forward four abreast, the soldiers of John Smith's brigade braved a terrible storm of rebel musketry and cannon fire that knocked down hundreds of men. As the attack column plunged through a narrow cut that acted as a funnel only 100 yards from the Confederate lines, the pile of dead and wounded men formed a gruesome roadblock that actually helped check the advance. Despite another heroic effort against desperate odds, none of Smith's men reached the 3rd Louisiana Redan. A short distance south of the Jackson Road, the soldiers of John D. Stevenson's brigade made their way to a sheltered ravine just 200 yards from the Great Redoubt. The Federals raised a shout and surged up the steep hill with scaling ladders in hand. The men of the 7th Missouri advanced beneath a green flag emblazoned with the gold harp, symbolic of their Irish heritage. 
Although casualties were high, especially among officers, the Missourians leaped into the ditch and pushed the ladders against the redoubt. For a moment it looked as if McPherson's Federals might achieve a breakthrough, but the ladders weren't long enough to reach the top of the earthen walls. Understandably discouraged by this unwelcome discovery, some men and then more climbed out of the ditch and streamed to the rear through a hail of enemy fire. Others clung to their precarious position despite a barrage of shells, which the rebel defenders lit and tossed into the ditch like hand grenades. Here, as elsewhere, Union losses were heavy. In one of the many tragic ironies of the Civil War, the Confederate defenders of the Great Redoubt were mostly Irishmen from New Orleans, and they also flew a green flag. Among them was Captain David Todd, Abraham Lincoln's brother-in-law. Lincoln actually had two brothers-in-law serving in Confederate Gray during the Vicksburg campaign. The other was Brigadier General Benjamin Helm, whose brigade was part of the force commanded by Joseph E. Johnston, which by now had reoccupied the devastated Mississippi State Capitol of Jackson after Sherman's troops were done with it. But anyway, back to Vicksburg... Only on McClernand's front to the south did the Federals manage to reach the enemy works in force. Scores of Yankees from Stephen Burbage's and William Benton's brigades reached the foot of the second Texas lunette. There, the fighting raged at extremely close quarters. Corporal Thomas Higgins carried the colors of the 99th Illinois to the top of the parapet near the lunette. Both he and his flag were eventually captured, For some reason, his captors would later accuse Higgins of wearing a metal breastplate, to which the corporal indignantly replied that if he'd had such a thing, quote, I would have put it on my rump. In the frenzy of battle, artillerymen of the Chicago Mercantile Battery performed an incredible feat. They somehow managed to haul a brass six-pounder cannon to within 10 yards of the lunette and fired canister point-blank at the rebel defenders. Despite such heroics, the Federals were repulsed with frightful losses. Only at the railroad redoubt, a few hundred yards south of the second Texas lunette, did McClernand's troops actually force their way into the Confederate works. Lieutenant J.M. Pearson of the 30th Alabama described the attack from the perspective of the defenders, saying, Suddenly the roar of the guns ceased. I sprang to my feet and looked in the direction of the enemy. When they seemed to be springing from the bowels of the earth, a long line of indigo, a magnificent line in each direction, and they kept for a while the alignment as on dress parade, but moving at the double quick. The rebel lieutenant expressed the thoughts of many defenders when he added, quote, It was a grand and appalling sight. Waves of federal soldiers in Michael Lawler's and William Landrum's brigades swept forward over the hilly terrain and poured into the ditch fronting the railroad redoubt. Clawing their way up the slope, two sergeants, Joseph Griffith and Nicholas Messenger of the 22nd Iowa, led a dozen or so men through a breach in the redoubt's earthen wall. In a desperate, vicious, hand-to-hand struggle, the Iowans forced the Confederates to abandon part of the redoubt and took the aforementioned Lieutenant Pearson and some of his men prisoners. 
The Federals here in this sector appeared to be on the brink of a breakthrough, but McClernand had no reserves to use to exploit his success. He sent an urgent message to Grant saying, quote, We have part possession of two forts, and the stars and stripes are floating over them. To prevent the enemy from rushing reinforcements to the scene, McClernand wrote that a, quote, vigorous push ought to be made all along the line. Although Grant doubted the truthfulness of McClernand's claim of scoring a partial victory, apparently simply because the claim came from McClernand, the commanding general nevertheless belatedly ordered the assaults renewed. And so early in the afternoon, Union soldiers advanced all along the line, though with no more success than in the morning assaults. The only result was to lengthen the Army's casualty lists. As the Federals withdrew back to their lines the afternoon of May 22nd, they left behind hundreds of dead and wounded. As darkness covered the landscape, the sounds of battle were replaced by the heart-rending cries of the wounded. Grant's second assault on Vicksburg's defenses had cost the Army of the Tennessee about 3,200 men killed, wounded, or missing. Confederate casualties aren't known for certain, but probably didn't exceed 500. Obviously, the rebels had recovered far more quickly from their shaky performance at the Big Black River than Grant had expected. As he contemplated his next move, the federal commander unaccountably refused to call a truce, as was customary, in order to retrieve his dead and wounded, many of whom had been lying in front of the Confederate works since May 19th. Hundreds of bloated and discolored corpses were emitting a sickening stench in the oppressive heat and humidity. More than one Confederate voiced the opinion that the Yankees must be trying to stink them out of Vicksburg. Finally, on May 25th, white flags appeared along the rebel line. Many Federals hoped that the enemy had decided to give up, but the purpose of the ceasefire was merely to allow the passage of a message from Pemberton imploring Grant, quote-unquote, in the name of humanity, to bury his dead and recover his wounded, that is, if any remained alive after being forsaken for so long. Grant reluctantly agreed to a truce of two and a half hours. While burial details carried out their gruesome work, thousands of other soldiers in blue and gray mingled between the lines. One soldier recalled, quote, There a group of four played cards, two Yanks and two Rebs, while others swapped tobacco for coffee. For the duration of the truce, it was almost as if there were no war going on. But then at the appointed time, the white flags were taken down and everyone ran for cover. The siege of Vicksburg began in earnest that day. The failed attack of May 22nd triggered a command crisis within the Army of the Tennessee. 
The touchy relationship between Grant and McClernand had worsened during the previous few days as a result of several misunderstandings and miscommunications. Then Grant learned that his doubts about the accuracy of McClernand's appeal for help were well-founded. Soldiers of the 13th Corps had gained partial possession of only one fort, not two, and even that success was short-lived since the rebels had quickly counterattacked and overwhelmed the few Federals who had managed to get inside the railroad redoubt. When a disgusted Grant tallied the number of men killed or wounded during the afternoon assault in support of McClernand's supposed breakthrough, he considered relieving McClernand immediately. But McClernand had proven himself a capable corps commander who had performed admirably thus far in the campaign, certainly more so than Sherman or McPherson, and he was popular with his men. And so, unwilling to do anything that might cause discontent in the ranks, especially after the heavy losses of May 19th and 22nd, Grant decided to keep McClernand in command of his corps for the duration of the siege, then insist that he take a leave of absence from the Army of the Tennessee. But as it turned out, McClernand inadvertently provided Grant with a reason, or at least a pretext, for his removal. You see, contrary to standing orders from the War Department, McClernand published a bombastic congratulatory letter in Midwestern newspapers, tactlessly playing up the accomplishments of his 13th Corps at the expense of the 15th and 17th Corps. Not surprisingly, Sherman and McPherson were livid and demanded that Grant take action. By this time, the siege of Vicksburg was reaching its end, and Grant knew that McClernand's departure at this point would have little effect on the ultimate outcome. And so on June 18th, he relieved the Illinois political general for violation of orders and replaced him with Major General Edward O.C. Ord, an old army friend and fellow West Pointer, but a far less capable commander than McClernand. McClernand appealed to Washington for justice, but Grant's star was on the rise after his success at Vicksburg, and so it was John McClernand who faded from the scene. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is The Vicksburg Assaults, May 19th through the 22nd, 1863, edited by Stephen E. Woodworth and Charles D. Greer. This book has five essays that look at different aspects of the federal attacks and Confederate defense, and is well worth picking up if you want to take a closer look at what happened during Grant's two failed attempts to quickly capture Vicksburg. So that's The Vicksburg Assaults, edited by Stephen E. Woodworth and Charles D. Greer. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find links to the show's Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as information on how to join the Strawfoot Brigade and support the podcast in that way. We want to give a shout out to the newest members, Jason, Patrick, 
Tom, and Zachary. Nathan, Gustavo, Sarah, and Douglas. Sandin, Kara, Nathan, Bob, and Harold. And a big thank you to Rick at Conley's Horse Photos for his donation to the podcast. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you'll join us again next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.